Amen. Thanks, Andrew. And good morning. Good morning. Um, went on a walk of Snowden yesterday with some people from our gospel community, and I'm 46, so I think I've seized up in about 14 different places. So forgive me if I look like a cowboy when I'm trying to stand up here. That's what's going on. So we're in Nehemiah chapter 6. Have you got your Bibles? Do you want to open them up at Nehemiah chapter 6? Matt Hancock instead of representing his people when Parliament was sitting, follows his own agenda, a hunt for celebrity maybe, or a, a desire for £400,000, or maybe popularity amongst the people, and maybe some sort of redemption for what's gone on in the past. FIFA, right up on the news at the moment, organise a World Cup, which starts today, which has just opened up the curtain on how much corruption and greed has been taking place in that organisation over the past three to four decades. Elon Musk, the most powerful man in the world, it seems at the moment, in many, many ways, buys Twitter, then sacks a huge chunk of his workforce, raising all kinds of questions about what is going on for the people who work for him. These are just a few recent examples, and there are so many more that we could all think of in the government, in the religious sphere, sadly, in sport, where the world seems to be in a leadership crisis in many spheres of life. You see, people want their leaders to have integrity, to stand on truth, to take responsibility, to not be pulled from the task that they are called to do, to represent them well as their leader. See, we're in the book of Nehemiah. The book of Nehemiah is set in Jerusalem, the capital of God's people, 2,500 years ago, as God's people are returning from exile. And Nehemiah, he's a leader who's been given this task to lead God's people to rebuild the walls of God's city, to, to put the gates back on, to unite God's people. And today what we're going to see is that there, there are many forces that are seeking to draw him away from this task. And Nehemiah is going to seek to walk rightly in the task that's been given to him. He's already faced, as we've seen in the past two to three weeks, um, threats from all the nations around. He's faced internal struggles of corruption within God's people. And he hasn't shied away from the challenge at all. But in dependent prayer, in boldness and in strength, he's faced each challenge. So much so that it seems that the opponents in this passage that we come to today realize, okay, we need to take this guy down. They need to take down Nehemiah. So let's pray and then we'll read it together. Father, thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ that we can sit here this morning and sing about Jesus, only Jesus, the Holy One, the one who we are to bow down to, the one who is worthy of all worship and praise. Father, thank you that we get to sing these things with a joy in our heart. Father, thank you that we get to gather as your people under the sound of your word, your word which is truth, your word which is a living word that goes out to your people. So Father, by your spirit today, make this word that, 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 that we are going to hear today a living word within each and every one of us. Help us to see what you have for us here. Help us to understand what you have for us here. Help us to take what you have for us and be transformed by it, your living word, by your spirit, through your son. Amen. Chapter 6, verse 1. Now when Sambalat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set the doors up in the gates. Sambalat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come and let us meet together at Hekifirim and the plain of Ono. 
but they intended to do me harm. And I sent messages to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. Okay, what we're going to see today is, is quite a few things repetitively. We're going to see a tactic of the opposition. We're then going to see a possible temptation for Nehemiah and God's people, and then we're going to see a response. Okay, that's what we're going to see today. So what we're going to see here, first of all, we're seeing the opposition to God's work. That they, to God's work. they are surrounding Jerusalem, and they've been watching what's going on very, very, very closely. And what they see is that despite their best attempts to stop the work, the work continues. And not only does it continue, but it continues very quickly, very efficiently. And the wall is being built. There's no entry point. And God's people, they are becoming more and more safe. And therefore, becoming more and more secure. And therefore, in their eyes, becoming more and more powerful. And so we get these three ringleaders that we, we keep coming across through the story. And these are influential, powerful men. And they gather to hatch a plan. And what the plan involves is taking down God's leader, the leader of God's people. And so two of them, what they do, they invite Nehemiah. They're trying to tempt Nehemiah away. And the place that they're trying to tempt him to is an unsecure area. It's actually on the, the border between, with Samaria, 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 sorry. And it's a whole day's journey for Nehemiah to get there from Jerusalem. And there's a, there's a big temptation that Nehemiah's faced. You see, these are very powerful leaders. Politically, you want to keep these guys on, on side. Diplomatically, you want to work with these people. But it's a long journey. It's a lot of time to take away from the work that he's been called to do and the people that he's been called to lead. And even without the threat that we see bubbling away there, this is still a big distraction for him to take the focus, his eyes away from the work of God. But as we read here, Nehemiah also becomes very suspicious of their motive. Why not meet near Jerusalem or near to Jerusalem so the work can continue? Why are they trying to lure him away from Jerusalem? See, he knows that they want to harm him in some way, probably physical, it seems. Maybe a, an accident can happen when no one is around. They can make it look like an accident. And there's a big threat here. So there's another temptation that he's faced with here to stop God's work because the consequences are really big for him. And Nehemiah, he responds with conviction. Look at the way he replies. He says, it's great work. He's saying, this is God's work. That's what he's saying here. This is God's word. That takes priority. I can't leave such an important work to come to you. And these guys, they're very persistent. Four times it tells us they try. That must have been hard to resist four times. But his resolve doesn't crumble. In the face of lots of pressure, because of the deep convictions that he has, Nehemiah, conviction, Nehemiah has convictions which are rooted, rooted in and erupt from God's word. And those convictions bring focus, bring motivation, bring clarity. In his decision-making, they bring a deep sense of the purpose that he has. So he is not moved. Good leadership has deep, deep grounding convictions. And the opponents, they, they realize that Nehemiah, this guy's not going to be distracted. He's not going to be taken away. So they try a different tactic in verse 5. In the same way, Sambalat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it's reported among the nations. And Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That's why you're building the wall. 
And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you've also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come, let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him saying, no such thing as you say have been done, for you're inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. See, now what they do is they they lie and they challenge Nehemiah's integrity. Sambalat, he's the governor of Samaria. So so an exchange of letters, that would have been diplomatic protocol. That's what they they would have done to exchange communication. And normally it would have been written in like a, a... Papyrus, papyrus, um, kind of leather, leather kind of bound, uh, bound, rolled up and tied with strings. So it would be sealed. And it would be sealed with this clay buller, like an impression. They would seal it so other people couldn't read it along the way. But he'd, he'd done that four times previously. But the fifth time he sends a letter, it's not done in a way which is tied and sealed. It's actually open. And this was a strategy that people would, would use so that the message would, would get out and the people would hear it. So he wants the people The people have got to know the contents for this word to spread. And what he's doing, he's trying to sow fear and distrust between the people and the Amai. He's saying people are talking, the nations all around, they're talking about this. Word is spreading. The Arabs are saying, that is make Geshem. You and the Jews. So he's he's bringing the people in with Nehemiah. He's not isolating. He's actually bringing them in. You're just guilty. He's going to come down on you this. You're, You're going to rebel. And he tells them, look, you're... You're going around telling people you've become, become king. You're setting up prophets to tell people you've become king, that there's a king in Judah. See, what they're doing here, they are putting Nehemiah and the people with him against the king of Persia. They're so in fear. They're challenging, they're challenging Nehemiah's integrity and motivations to the people in relation to the king. They're calling into question Nehemiah's motivations. And that request at the end, it, it kind of might seem like, political and nice come and speak to us let's talk about this come on but it's a threat it's blackmail remember that physical harm is still standing there that threat of physical harm they are still trying to draw Nehemiah out to isolate him and to take him down and Nehemiah even here he's going to face a different set of temptations isn't he there's going to be a temptation to protect his reputation at all costs to make a name for himself, and to keep a name for himself. He's going to face the temptation here to people, please, to keep Sambalat and the people. To people, please, to keep Sambalat and the people on side, to ease the pain. He's also going to face a temptation to to change the way that he leads people, to keep people happy, so to lead people in a way that keeps them happy, to to keep them with him, to keep them on side with him, which effectively is to manipulate them for his own agenda. And Nehemiah responds. Firstly, what does he respond? He responds by standing firmly in what he knows to be true. He doesn't bow to, to the propaganda He doesn't change because of the propaganda. He sees through it and he exposes the lies and he exposes the motivation behind the lies. He speaks out and what he says is, that's lies. You've made it up. Thanks, Ben. Out of your heart. 
Out of your heart, you've made this up. That's what he's saying, out of your mind. That's a Jewish phrase, which means your motivation for this is to actually stop God's work. Their intent in this is to make God's people so scared that they stop God's word. And Nehemiah, as a leader, he stands firm. And secondly, what does he do? He prays in dependence on God. See, it would be really easy here for Nehemiah to, to be paralyzed in fear and anxiety at the potential consequences of what might happen. So he, he knows Nehemiah, he knows he needs God's help in this. He knows he needs God's, God's help for the strength to carry on. God's help for a resolve and a focus and, and, and an understanding of what it means to lead this people at this time. To trust God, and that's what he asked for. Good leadership stands firm on truth and draws strength from God. And so with that not working, they try a different tactic again. We okay? All good, thank you. So what they try now, verse 10 to 14, they try to get the people to cause Nehemiah to sin, verse 10 to 14. This one leaves a bit of a bad taste in the mouth. Now I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deleah, son of Mehetabel, who's confined to his home. He said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God hadn't sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. For this purpose, he was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sambalat, oh my God, according to these things that they did. And also the prophetess, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. Nehemiah goes, or he's been invited in, to the house of a priest, to a spiritual leader amongst God's people. And he's probably hoping to get a little bit of good advice or good counsel or support for what's going on in and around him. But this priest is sold out to the opposition. And what he does, he's telling Nehemiah, he says, look, they're coming. They're coming to kill you tonight. It's happening. Your best bet is hide. Come on, hide in the temple. I'll meet you there. We'll open the doors. We'll lock the doors. We'll make sure that we're safe in the temple. This is a horrible tactic to get his own people to betray him. And so get Nehemiah to sin publicly and then to discredit him to ruin him and to ruin his reputation before God's people. See, Nehemiah, he wasn't a priest. So he would be allowed into the court, but he wouldn't really be allowed into the sanctuary. So he's facing another massive temptation here, Nehemiah. Temptation here is for, for self-protection. Temptation here is to think, well, they're going to come and kill me tonight. This is a priest. This is a, a man of God. Is he surely telling the truth? They're going to kill me tonight. I need to go. I need to protect myself. Temptation to be cowardly, to be fearful. A real temptation to sin. This is a horrible tactic. Fortunately, Nehemiah saw right through it. He refuses to be scared. He says this, God's leaders can't run. 
God's leaders can't run. And he sees right through this priest. He understands that this is not from God and this man does not speak on behalf of God. This prophecy that he's, re that he's received, it contradicts the word of God. So therefore, it's not true prophecy. It's false. And he knows that that's not from God. That's from Sambalat and Tobiah. They have paid him. Just take that in for a second. A priest in God's temple has been hired by the opposition to God's people. So Nehemiah, again, he stands firm, calls out these lies, and he flees sin. He flees sin. And then he prays again. How often do we see that in this book, and specifically in these early chapters, as Nehemiah is seeking to lead the people, Nehemiah dependent in prayer. And he says, God, remember them. What he's saying is bring judgment on these people. Remember your judgment. Remember your justice. Bring it, Lord. And then ominously, I think, there's another kind of darker thing going on even more so that he highlights. He highlights that the priest is not the only one. There are others. There's Noadiah, the prophetess, amongst other prophets and prophetesses. Other false prophets hired by the enemies of God's people. Maybe even enemies themselves of God and his work amongst God's people seeking to sow division to sow fear, seeking to stop the advance of God's kingdom. Good leadership sees sin. Good leadership flees sin. And good leadership turns to God in prayer for strength. And we get verse 15 to 19. So the war was finished on the 25th day of the month, Elul, in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah. And Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him. Because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah. And his son Jehohanan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence. And reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. This is big what's going on here, isn't it? They had tried everything. They tried conspiracy. They tried threat. They tried accusations. They tried character assassination. They'd literally thrown the kitchen sink at him and God's people. But still, the war was finished. And not only was it finished, it was finished in 52 days. This small, vulnerable, weak group of exiles had rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem in under two months. That's an incredible achievement. God was helping his people and the nations around. They knew it. That's the only sign that they could get from this. And they were afraid, the passage tells us. They knew this was God helping his people. He was protecting his people. He was strengthening his people. So what happened? They fell in their own esteem. That means that their, their self-confidence shriveled up. Their spirits fell. They were, the, they were scared of Israel's God. But the passage closes with a tension. Seems like other opponents have faded into the backdrop. But one of them continues to cause issues. Tobiah. And the way it works is that Tobiah seemed to have connections into God's people. 
The first connection he had was through his wife. So his, fa- his wife's father was Shechaniah. He was an influential leader. So he'd married into Jewish nobility. But second of all, his son had married into Meshulam's family. Now we've met Meshulam before. We, we read about him. Chapter 3, verse 4 and verse 30. He's involved in the building project. So he's a key figure. And this marriage through the family unit, it seemed to have bound him to them. Possibly in, a, in agreements um, around it. Possibly in trade and other relational Um, agreements. Verse 18 also tells us that he was bound in oath to many others in Jerusalem. Tobiah had influence and power amongst God's people. He was highly regarded amongst God's people, and he was an enemy of God. There was a really strong bond between Tobiah and some key Jewish families, and he was using them and seeking to use them and continue to use them to pull down Nehemiah and God's people from within. And the way that this worked, it seemed a bit like a propaganda war that was going on. So he would get his people to speak highly of him in public and in key areas and in key meetings and in key influential groups of people. While he was also finding out details of what Nehemiah was doing and saying in some of these meetings with his close people around him. That's got to have been difficult for Nehemiah. It's got to have felt isolating. Who does he trust? There's a breakdown of trust amongst him and the other leaders around him. He's got to be suspicious. It's breeding and fostering an atmosphere of suspicion here. And Tobiah, he was using this. He was writing letters to Nehemiah to make him afraid. It might have been blackmailing. It might have been swaying him politically or diplomatically or even some sort of what we would call lobbying at the moment in different ways. And there's a big temptation here for Nehemiah to give Tobiah some power amongst God's people. Just make himself popular. Tobiah's popular amongst the people. Just go along with him. Maybe allow Tobiah a seat at the table. Make friends with this guy. That would make life a lot easier for him. Maybe let him on on some key decisions. Maybe give him an office amongst God's people. Make life easy. But his response was strong and biblical again. We actually don't see it to a a couple of verses later, which we'll go into more detail on next week. But just cast your eyes down to chapter 7, verse 2, where it says this. I, that is Nehemiah, gave my brother Hanani, and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. And this is key. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. Nehemiah does what is right by God and what is best for God's people, not what is easiest and what is most popular. He appoints people to offices and into positions of responsibility and service and authority who have the right character. What is the mark of these guys here, Hananiah and Hananiah? They were faithful men to God and they were God-fearing men. They didn't fear people. They weren't marked by a fear of people. They feared God. They didn't make decisions, therefore, for popularity or to keep people happy or to keep power. No, these were faithful, God-fearing men who would lead God's people rightly by God. Good leadership makes decisions in faithfulness to God, and good leaders fear God. There's some lessons here that I think that we can take from this as leaders and followers, which we are all within those categories. First of all, there's many lessons here, I think, for leaders. There's much, there are are many forms of leadership represented here in Cornerstone Cornerstone Church. So we have elders. We have ministry team 
leaders. We have gospel community leaders. We have leaders in families. We have leaders in workplaces. We've got a mix of all of those that I've just mentioned. And the question I, I want to ask you and for you to reflect on, if you are a person of influence, if you have influence in and over others, where are you tempted to sin as you lead people? Where are you tempted to sin as you lead people? Where are you vulnerable in your leadership? Please don't just hear my voice. Take it and wait for the next sentence. Think about what I've just said. Pray through what I've just said. Ask for God's help in processing what I've just said. What are the methods that could be used against you to use you not for God's purposes, but for the enemies? Are you easily distracted from your task, from your mission? Are you easily distracted from what God has called you to do? It could be because of a, a desire for comfort. You just want life to be easy or everything to be the way that you want it to be. It actually could be laziness could be certain relationships that distract you. Is it a discontentment? A discontentment that possibly fuels a, a constant pull to the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. Do you say yes to every opportunity that comes along and then have to walk through the chaos that erupts after your, your walk? Maybe fear is a big factor in your leadership. Can I suggest that it, if you're a leader, fear will be a factor in your leadership somewhere? It could be fear of harm. Probably not at this moment in time. Physical for us. But the harm could take the form of job loss, income, job security. That can affect how we lead. It can affect how we lead people. Is it a fear of people? Is there a loss of respect that you fear in other people's eyes? Does that shape your decisions? Does that shape your conversations? Is it a desire to be in the in crowd, as we call it? If you've got time this week and that is something that you struggle with, a desire to be in the in crowd and a longing to be there, there's a great essay by C.S. Lewis. Um, if you just put it into the internet, have a read of that this week. It's been really challenging for me and also really helpful for me. Is it a fear of a loss of reputation? That could take the form of a desire for your name to be elevated, to be included and recognized whenever things happen. Is it a fear of a loss of power? Not sure who you are if you lose that position or that place or that Job, if your influence goes, therefore you try to control the power in different settings. Is it a temptation to cowardice? It's a strong word. But I think it applies to a lot of situations in leadership. The avoidance of hard conversations. See, to avoid conflict at all costs, it's not loving. 
It's not loving. A few years back, um, me and, and Bonnie went for some counseling in our, in our marriage just to work some stuff through. And one of the things the counselor said to us was, he talked about conflict. And he said that conflict is the vehicle that moves you from, can often move you from one place to the next if it's done rightly. Conflict is the vehicle that moves you from, it's the fuel in the vehicle that moves you from one place to the next. And I share that for two reasons. One, I'm sorry, I didn't ask you, could I share that example? So my apologies. I share that to say that if you need help, get it. That's okay, this is not a church of perfect people and perfect leaders. You're gonna see that as I make my way through the rest of this sermon. Get help, talk, reach out to people. But two, to understand that actually all conflict should not be avoided. There is good conflict that needs to happen. The question is, how do we engage in it? Is it a temptation to sin that you constantly face? A temptation maybe to lie? That you just are drawn into half-truths? What I used to call growing up little white lies, which don't exist, do they? Is it a temptation to maybe just indulge yourself? It's all about you and what you can get and how you live. Is there a temptation to actually manipulate people in how you lead them? To not love people and so avoid all conflict? Maybe to not be honest? To not tell the whole truth? To not be transparent? And if you're like me, if you're like me, quite a few of these things are going to ring true. See, this is why the gospel is so beautiful to you and me as leaders. You see, you read this book in Nehemiah, and what do we see? He just moves from one problem to the next. He's constantly putting fires out, isn't he? You read the book, and it never stops. It never gets resolved, and we're longing through the book of Nehemiah for this tension that just bubbles away to be resolved, resolved. and that is there to draw our eyes forward because there's only one perfect leader who has ever lived. There's only one true king, the one who came and washed his followers' feet in loving service. The one who came and died for his people in love and sacrifice. The God-man. The Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was and is the only perfect leader. You're not. You're not. Let that liberate you. You're not perfect. The reality is, leader, in whatever sphere that you are in, you will make mistakes. You will mess up. You will let people down. You will get judgment calls wrong. You're not God. The reality is you're weak. You're vulnerable. You are dependent. Why? Because you're not perfect. You need Jesus Christ. Leader, you need Jesus Christ as much as anyone. And the beautiful truth of the gospel is that Jesus Christ is with you and that Jesus Christ is there for you beautiful truth of the gospel is that Jesus Christ guides us by his Holy Spirit. He strengthens us. So we can pray with Nehemiah in verse 9, oh God, strengthen our hands. In liberation and weakness and dependency, we can say, Lord, strengthen my hands. Acknowledging our weakness and vulnerability and sin is where we find freedom. It's where we find comfort. And ironically, contrary to what the word tells us, it's where we find true strength for the time ahead. So we move forward, leaders, not in our own strength, but in God's strength through us. So whatever your role is, whatever your role is, turn to God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and find your help in time of need, saying, oh God, strengthen my hands. Help me to hold on to my convictions. 
Help me to stand firm on the truth. Help me to face fear. Help me to fight sin. Help me to love people as we lead people. If you're not a believer here today, there is a perfect leader that you can trust. I want to leave that there for you and with you. Jesus Christ, the the Son of God. There is one who stands firm. There is one who lived and died for your good, who put your interest above his own at all times. The one who sacrificed himself for you. The one who represents you in heaven. The one who is for you and always will be for you. The one who will always be with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Will you trust him today? But I think as well as we read this, there is another subtle challenge that runs through this passage. And an undercurrent, might I say, that, that we can gloss over as we focus on that Nehemiah, but miss what's actually going on as well under the surface. The priest, here he uses his position and the relationships that he had in God's people to cause harm for his own personal advantage. Two, we've got false prophets amongst God's people singing, seeking to, to sow division against the leaders. Three, we've got Tobiah who had connections amongst all of God's people, using those connections to speak against the leaders. He seems to be bigging himself up in comparison, talking well of himself and bigging himself up while downplaying what the leaders did. I do it this way, Nehemiah's not good. And the question I have for you today in light of this, because we've all got to ask this question of ourselves. We are all leaders and we are all followers in some context. Is that you? It's a question for all of us. We are all followers. Every single person that I am looking at in this room is a follower in some way. So please, like I asked before, don't just hear my voice and move on waiting for the next sentence, but take this word and pray it through. How do you speak of your leaders? How do you speak of the leaders in your life? How do you speak of leaders amongst family and friends? How do you speak of leaders in your church? How do you speak of leaders in your workplace? Is it divisive? Do you knock people down or do you build people up? How are your conversations with the leaders? How are they done? Are they done in a way which leaves people feeling edified and loved and honored? Hebrews 3, 13, sorry, verse 7 to 9 says this. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. Now let me just focus for a second on that last sentence in the context context of remembering your leaders. And to say, folks, be careful. We read here of Nehemiah and these false prophets and we're like, well, who are they? We're looking around, is there false prophets in the church? What might that look like? Folks, the internet is full of it. We think we're not exposed to false prophets and false teachers. The internet is racked with it. It's all over the internet. False teachers and false prophets. And what they do, they draw us away from what God has called us to. They draw us away not only from what God has called us to, but they draw us away from the people that God has called us to. You will never find a perfect leader suited exactly to your taste 
because we're not Jesus. But there is an array of choice on the internet that can draw us to our own personal satisfaction to find the voices we like, with the positions we like, speaking the way that we like, using the methods that we like. And we get into an echo chamber where we just hear our own opinions and our own thoughts back to us. It's really comfortable. We can find people that justify our own positions. Don't challenge us. We like the way that they speak or do things. And folks, let me be honest and lay this out. There are going to be things and character traits about your leaders here that you are going to wrestle with. That's not just our church. That is all people. You're going to wrestle with it. We're all different. There's going to be different opinions. You're going to have different opinions to the leaders. You're going to have different methods to the way that you might have done something or thought something through. You might have different ways of speaking or addressing people. You might have different ways of processing things. We know, folks, we know we're not perfect. And we as leaders are to humbly acknowledge that we're not perfect. But also as followers to recognize this. And to say that maybe, maybe it is good for us to be together. Maybe it's God's plan for our good to put us together. That it's not an accident that we are here. And God put us together to seek to love the people around us. To seek to love the the leaders who labor amongst us. While praying, Lord, maybe this is a prayer that you need to pray today. Help me to love the people and the leaders in my life. Help me. God answers these prayers. And the writer of Hebrews goes on in verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. This is a big challenge. Moving forward together into a shared joy in relationship. That's what's being called for here. A shared joy. Is it a joy for your leaders to lead you? Ask that question of yourself. Is it a joy for your leaders to lead you? Is that something that you hope for and pray for? Not that you should be a walkover or overly compliant but to be a member of the church, a member of the ministry team, a member of a gospel community, a member of your team in your workplace, whatever that might look like, who it is a joy to lead, who, yes, speaks openly and honestly, expressing opinions or or differences in a loving but edifying way, in a loving and edifying way. And I say this to say all of us are followers here. We've all got to ask this question. There have been times... But it's been hard to lead me. I've shared some of this, my own struggles, my own difficulties over the past few years. In fact, there's actually been a struggle and a wrestle for some people around me to to be amongst, in my company even. And what that does, folks, in my experience of it, and I think I can talk for the people who walked with me through some difficulties, it steals joy both ways. God uses these moments and he refines us that conflict being the thing that sometimes walks us to it. That's what I think the writer of the Hebrews is talking about here. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. It's not good either way. It steals joy either way. I think we're called to something deeper, more eternal, 
more worthy, more valuable, which is a shared joy and relationship as we walk through life together. And if that is you, like me, struggling in any of these areas, what an opportunity we, we now have as we move towards taking communion together. Okay, we take communion together. We don't do it on our own. We take it together as a people. We're taking this together, experiencing the grace of goodness of God together as a family, as brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. So what an opportunity and a time to, to confess, to repent, to ask for forgiveness. Either as a, a leader in some, some way to, to, to ask for the grace of God to carry on or someone who struggles under certain dynamics of leadership. Asking God to strengthen our hands. No matter where you find yourself on the spectrum because you're going to find yourself somewhere, possibly in multiple places, I know I do, with respect to service and leadership or with respect to being part of a team. But God our Father, he assures us that we will find mercy and grace in times of need when we draw to him by the Holy Spirit through the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, it's here that we find freedom and true joy under the perfect leader. And as I close, let me just draw us to a close with Paul's words to the Ephesians, which I think help us navigating what it means to be strengthened as a leader, if you put those words up for us, please, Mel. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. What Paul is saying here is that we believers are strengthened as we see who the Lord Jesus Christ is and the love that he pours to us. You want to work out what it means to be a leader and to push forward as a leader, to grow as a leader, to fight sin as a leader? See the Lord Jesus Christ. See the love that he has for you. You want to learn what it means to be a good follower, a good member of a church, to, to be a joy to be amongst, to be a joy in relationship? Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and see him and see the love that he has for you. That's strengthening. If you, if you do exercise, you know that if you, you have to strengthen your core. And if you don't strengthen your core, you're going to pull muscles everywhere all the time. So you always have to keep your, your core strong. That's what's being said here. The core of our relationship, the core of our faith is turning back and seeing how much we are loved. And we walk forward as leaders and followers in the strength that God provides by seeing how much we are loved in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we process these things. We are forgiven. We are loved. We have every eternal blessing and that we can step, step forward. So as we take this now, as this bread and this wine goes round, those words are going to stay up. Please read them. Be honest before God because he knows the conversations you've had in the quiet of your room. He knows the thoughts that go on. He knows where your heart is. Be honest. Be liberated from it today. Confess, repent. Take this bread. Take this wine. Read these words and ask that God would strengthen your hands. Strengthen your hands to lead and strengthen your hands to follow as we walk forward in his work. If you're not a believer here today, 
The Bible says this is for God's people. So please, we would ask that you would let this pass. We don't apologize for that. That's what the Bible calls us to. We want you to know the Lord Jesus Christ and we ask that you would turn to him. But the Bible does say that this is for those who believe and share in the goodness and the grace of Jesus. So allow this to pass, please. But come and speak to us after. We'd love to pray with you and for you. So let me pray. The bread and the wine will go around and then we'll sing. Father, I thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he is the one true king, that he is the one, the perfect one. Help us, I praise your people, as we take this reminder that we have today, these, this bread and this wine. Help us, Father, I pray. Show us where we can struggle. Show us where we are vulnerable. Show us where we have been caught in the wrong way of thinking or desiring or acting. Show us, Father, and give us the courage and the strength and the freedom to just confess, repent, to move forward. Father, strengthen our hands. Strengthen our hands as leaders. Father, help us by your strength to be leaders in any sphere of influence that we have, like Jesus. Please make us, give us the heart of Jesus that moves out, I pray. And help us to be followers like Jesus, I ask. Bless us as we take this. Bless us as we sing. Fill our hearts with a joy. In Jesus' name, amen.